90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing great. Enjoying the summer, reading a bunch of theses still, still. (laughs) (laughs) And you get to read them again after the edits are done. I know. No one told me being a professor would be like rewriting my master's a thousand times. (laughs) That's just, oh man, that was something I wasn't prepared for. (laughs) Uh, What about you? Oh, you know, just uh, connecting my lawn sprinklers to the internet. What? (laughs) (laughs) oh yes so the next fun paper we'll have will be about somebody hacking your sprinklers and then if you're in the middle of a drought and you're gonna get fined for having your sprinklers on all day and and you're gonna say it was the internet it wasn't my fault (laughs) (laughs) well the whole idea of this device so it's called a ratio and It connects to all your sprinkler valves, and you set it up with an app. And the whole idea is it looks at the weather forecast, and it looks at the current conditions. And things like you tell it, I have this kind of grass, and my soil is loamy or clay, and it's on a slope or it's not, and I have this kind of sprinkler head in each zone. And it runs a little soil model to figure out how often it should water based on the conditions that you're having. And wow. won't do things like water in high wind or water during rain and all that. Wow. I'm, oh, I don't even want to say it. I think I'm actually impressed. But the nice thing is, you know, like I said, it's, the idea is to save water. I was, I was planning on implementing something like this with a Raspberry Pi and writing some kind of little Python web front end and all this. And this was really a very economical solution <laughs> compared yeah. to that. And I didn't have to spend a couple of days writing all the code. <laughs> I was going to say, well, more importantly, what weather is it looking at? What forecast is it looking at? I think it's pulling weather service. Okay. You should check that. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's pulling a weather ser- the the closest NOAA station for current conditions. I'm planning on running a little script so that my station gets posted to it. Ooh. And so it will actually be using conditions from my backyard. Fancy. Okay, I can't wait to hear this uh, as it evolves. <laughs> there will be a saga, hopefully not oh. of dead sod. Uh, <laughs> a sodica? Oh. Oh. <laughs> but we are actually really excited today because we've got a guest joining us. We're joined by Chris Taylor of Taylor Custom. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Excellent. We ta- we have a long history with Chris on this show, right, John? We do. You might remember from the Listener Limerick contest that all of the awesome prizes that we had were provided by Chris and Taylor Custom uh, to us to give to you as listeners for competing in the challenge. And so I will let uh, Chris tell us, of course, more about his business and what he does. But before we get there... I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now. Um, Well, I actually originally went to school to study biology, but but I ended up uh, not being up to the uh, technical challenge or not having the the, uh, diligence to do chemistry and some of the other technical things. Um, so I ended up as a history major, but really I ended up spending most of my time 
making little wire sculptures and soap carvings and whatnot. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't have the uh, wherewithal to do very well in chemistry either. <laughs> yeah, I figured that's not an uncommon story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, doing these wire sculptures and soap carvings and all that, that that's definitely an artistic bent. So how did you get into doing this? Is that something that you've always been interested in and good at or something that you picked up during college? Uh, you know, as a kid, I guess I, I drew a lot, but it was mostly, it was kind of a monothematic thing with like tanks and fighter planes and the occasional Dungeons and Dragons related thing. But, uh, right. <laughs> but it, it kind of fell off when I went to high school and, uh, and my recollection is that I got there and all the other kids could draw way better than me. Um, or we were being asked to draw things that weren't military hardware. So, uh, <laughs> and I hadn't been practicing like people and horses and stuff. Oh yes. I, I remember during, I guess it was middle school and I had to take art class that that was my, my B of middle school. As Ooh. I, I was no good at no good at drawing they said draw the shoe and set a shoe up for us to draw and what i drew looked nothing like a shoe so. <laughs> it's okay you're not bitter at all no yeah. but so how do you get from making soap carvings and wire models and studying history to doing what you do now um well when i got out of school i got a job as a cashier at the science museum gift shop which is what i was qualified for um and i can still remember one night i was sitting there um at, at the cash register and being not terribly uh satisfied with my choice of career i suppose <laughs> and i noticed that like literally hundreds of kids were buying the same dolphin necklace um every night <laughs> And I thought, geez, that's like a hundred a night from one science museum. And if I can carve naked ladies in soap, I could probably carve a dolphin too. Um, <laughs> and so, it, and it's a long and tortuous tale of how I got from there to actually doing it. Um, but, you know, I just started calling people up and getting to know stuff. And I took a a night class in metalworking or a couple of them and uh gradually gradually over the course of 25 years it uh it evolved into what it is now that's awesome um do you still start all of your designs with i mean do you still start it with a carved chunk of oh clay no or? no <laughs> um, no the the process has really changed like when i first started doing it i um i would go take books out of the library, get books on interlibrary loan. Um, I remember one time going to the aquarium and making sketches of stuff in the tanks. Um, but now it's pretty, pretty purely internet. Um, and if I hit something that's a technical issue, and I frequently do that, uh, that I can't answer through the internet, I usually try and message people or email them who happen to be experts in the field and i get a surprisingly high rate of response hmm. 
um, experts. Then why why did you have John help you on one then? <laughs> <laughs> so b- before we go any further into how you actually make what you do, I think it would be good to yeah just clarify <laughs> for folks a little bit what exactly Taylor Custom does and what you sell. I sell uh, little trinkets, uh, mostly based on a variety of science themes. Uh, it started with just animals, but, uh, but then because I was working at the Science Museum gift shop, I remember I did a brain and a heart, and then I started doing dinosaurs. Uh, and at one point, a friend of mine recommended doing a generalized animal cell biology piece and things just kept getting more complex from there. Well, and these aren't your average, you know, you go pick up a, a trinket somewhere or a model of anything and you look at it for a few minutes and you can see all kinds of inaccuracies. You go to great lengths to make sure that these are as scientifically accurate as possible, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly aspire towards accuracy. Um, like, just yesterday, I was looking up the, uh, the reading an article on the capsimer arrangement on the uh, on the prolate head of a bacteriophage, which is different from from the way it is on other viruses. But anyway, the I aspire towards accuracy, but I definitely don't always achieve it. As with uh, as with my plate tectonics piece, which has a pretty glaring inaccuracy. Uh, namely, namely that the hot spot volcano chain goes perpendicular to the direction of the motion of the plate. Ah, yes, uh, instead of plate parallel, I can imagine that it's hard to get all of the all of the details right because you are somewhat limited by the media that you're working with. You can only do so much detail. And you cover a pretty wide variety of fields, so that's difficult as well. But I guess what what inspires you to create uh, a new piece? So how do you know that your next piece is going to be plate tectonics or the heart? Well, so, some something like the heart is kind of obvious. Like once you've started doing anatomical stuff, there are only a certain number of organs that are that don't look like amorphous blobs and that, <laughs> that are popular, popular organs. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I guess there's not a lot of demand for like spleen keychains, huh? <laughs> I, I actually get a lot of requests for pancreas and gallbladder and a, a lot of other stuff that's, uh, that's not as photogenic as say, a, <laughs> say a kidney, <laughs> Um, that's awesome. But then, or or a brain, especially. But uh, but then, I suppose that's a challenge. <laughs> Trying to make a spleen look interesting, yes. Yeah, well, that would be. Um, so, I, do you end up getting a lot of requests from people saying, "I, I would like to see a keychain of X," and that's where you go to your next idea to make it, or is this a you sit up in bed in the middle of the night and say, next, I need to make a, a T-Rex or something like that. It's definitely a mix of the two, but definitely uh, requests and suggestions are, are a pretty big part of it. Um, and which, which uh, requests I actually follow through on uh, 
is usually based on what's going to be poss- physically possible to make and what's going to end up being robust enough to withstand use as a keychain and what'll go through the other other parts of the process. Uh, so I have to ask, were, were the tardigrade earrings a uh, request, or did you just say, I have to make something out of a water bear? No, I actually, I, I read some article about water bears a long, long time ago, and I had it kind of partly sculpted and sitting there uh, for a long time. Um, it, it was just, just me, that was just me reading an article and uh, thinking that they sounded cool. Uh, I'm probably going to buy you out of them for Christmas, I'm going to tell you, because <laughs> those are the best. <laughs> yeah, I think that especially listeners of this show are going to find mm-hmm. a lot of the things on your website pretty interesting. So do you do a lot of I mean, direct sales from your website, and are these in museum gift shops? So if I go to a gift shop, can I expect to find some Taylor custom parts there? You know, I I don't have stuff in a lot of museums anymore. Um, it's just been really tough to compete with with people who are uh, making these things in higher volumes. So most of my sales are uh, direct sales through my website or on Etsy. And so where do you, um, you? I mean, you just answered that Etsy, but like, where do you find? Um... You know, who's your target audience and how do you sort of get the word out to them? You know, I think I get most most of it is just referrals from previous customers. Um, I do I do spend money on advertise like Etsy allows you to have an advertising budget. So I do do that to some extent. But other other sorts of advertising have never really worked out for me. So. Hmm. Just trying trying to make stuff that's uh, that's enough of a conversation starter that that it generates its own publicity is. Yeah, I'm gonna be like so popular with these tardigrade earrings. <laughs> I just can't describe <laughs> how excited I am. <laughs> I, I will say so. I have uh, a couple of your pieces, and I always get asked where they came from or who made them. And some of the detail is really amazing. Uh, for example, the, the Alvin submersible has a lot of detail for such a small keychain. So I, I was really curious, how do you actually manufacture these? You said a lot of it happened. A lot of the design happens now on the computer. Uh, with pr- a pretty much program. all of it now happens on the computer. Um, the, so, the Alvin is actually a good, good example of that um, the Alvin was actually intended to be my first computer-generated piece, but I sat down to model it in the CAD software that I had at the time, and I found it, I wasn't able to get all the shapes the way I wanted to. So I actually ended up carving the Alvin by hand. So you've got a pretty good idea of what the limit of the amount of detail I can get by hand is. then, uh, then a few years later, I was asked to do the Atlantis, which is the mothership for the Alvin. And I tried carving that by hand, and I just couldn't do all the little portholes and, and little rectangular things. So I finally got my act together and learned the CAD software to the point where I needed to do it. Um, huh. So, so you've got a CAD model in the end, or 
I guess you could even have your hand carving. How do you get from that to a metal keychain? Um, I take the the wax hand carving. I mean, I'm I'm going to be skipping a whole bunch of steps, but uh, I take the the 3D printout, which is I just do on my own little 3D printer, and I send it to a casting company who makes a uh, master mold. Then they send me a set of master models, which I then carefully clean up. And from that, a uh, production mold is made. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. That's... Um, so how do you choose, I guess, what you're going to make into what? Like, is there a certain, you know, keychains of anatomy cells better or, you know earrings of tardigrades sell better or is it just whatever you're thinking about at the time um it's kind of a mix of stuff i mean there's a bunch of factors is like manufacturability there's how fun it seems to make to me um how well i think it's going to sell how many requests i've had um the tardigrade uh, at the time I made it, it wasn't very frequently requested, but it's definitely been one of the more popular pieces. Oh, awesome! And, <laughs> what what does sell the best? Is it keychains or jewelry? Um, I think it's pretty even. Actually, earring. I've only recently started adding a lot of earrings, and those have been surprisingly popular. But yeah, it's pretty even between. Of... I know a lot of nerdy people that like very interesting earrings, so I could see where that would that would do well. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got some geology pieces, and out of your geology geoscience themed pieces, what one did you find the most interesting to make? So where did you have to really dig into the material and uh, end up coming out with a piece that's just really spectacular and was a lot of learning in the process um i don't that's there's probably a bunch that have their own merits but i think the stratigraphy piece i don't know if you have one of those but that was one of my very first articulating multi multi-part pieces and i remember thinking as i made it that that this will be the coolest keychain in the world if i can actually get it to work um and like this, like all of the, uh, all of the, what do they, what do they call the junction between two stratigraphic layers? Um, I mean, they're uh, yeah. like disconformities, unconformities, right. and whatnot. Yeah. And so I tried to include all the various types of, of things. Uh, oh, nice, nice. And, I could use this keychain. I love this stratigraphy keychain. Um, I could definitely use this as a test, basically, for my class. Yeah, I think one of our listeners uh, ended up requesting that as their their prize for the Limerick Challenge. So somebody out there listening to the show has one of these, and it's really cool. Like you said, there's all these little layers that you can peel back, and then there's a card that comes with it that tells you exactly what everything represents. Yeah, I put a lot of effort into the uh, into little information cards. That, that uh, I'm really everything. excited. There's some Demetrodon fossil in there, too. Cool. Actually, the stratigraphy piece is one that I'm probably going to do a, a new version of, too. Um, like, if you look at it, it's I still didn't really have a good idea of how to do the mechanical aspect. 
So it's got this gigantic clunky shoulder screw holding the pieces together um, that yeah. take up a lot of the a lot of the real estate. Um, well, Shannon, I'm surprised you weren't uh, attracted to the Earth's magnetic field piece. I yes. <laughs> Um, I know. I like the stratigraphy one better. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> Maybe it's because I understand that and the Earth's magnetic field, even though it's what I do, still uh, intimidates me. <laughs> even yeah, in keychain form. <laughs> the the magnetic planet Earth keychain was a real a real reach for me. I was, actually is one of the pieces I was kind of surprised it actually functioned well. Um, <laughs> why why were you surprised it would function well? It looks really well designed well i guess i didn't know like it's intended to be a two-part keychain and i didn't know mm -hmm. it's got to be just strong enough to hold together you know as it bangs around in your pocket and ah. and yet weak enough to actually be able to pull the two pieces together uh apart rather right yeah you wouldn't want somebody having to really really strain to get them apart yeah no kidding uh, and you also don't want to be so strong that you end up wiping out somebody's hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Credit cards. <laughs> right. Well, and then the the piece that you actually contacted me about was the the uh, fault zone piece, where this has an articulated transform fault. And I was really surprised with how well this articulated joint worked. And you seemed totally unsurprised that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so well because you've had experience doing this but that piece seemed like it to me anyway it had a lot of design challenges and you really put a lot of fine detail in there that i was surprised were able to be cast reliably yeah the casting isn't usually the uh the limiting factor in the amount of detail like i have a feeling that that if you could get it in the original model you could almost get like a microscopic level of detail that could reproduce but uh but the 3d printer and being able to clean up the the 3D print and have the detail hold up is is I think where the real limiting uh, part is. Yes, I mean I, I've 3D printed a lot of pieces in the past, and you always get the the layers. You you can see each individual layer that's deposited. So is that something that you have to you know sand down or fill with bondo or something before you send it off for a mold to be made? Yeah, there's usually a, you know four or five hours of sanding on a little piece before uh, oh. before I send it down to the caster. Wow. Which is a bummer when really something... That uh, Yeah, but, I mean, once you put the effort in, you know, the then you can get multiples without a whole lot of effort after that. Yeah, that's true. So your, your time invested is usually worthwhile. And so how long do you think from it, your average piece when you get the idea to when it is bagged up, sitting on your shelves and ready to ship? Is that a month? Is that six months? It really it really varies. Like in when I first started, it could be like three, four months. Um, I had to go through many more more stages in the process. And when you're carving something by hand, if you accidentally like drop it on the floor or something and, and an arm breaks off and you've just got to start and, and, you know, sometimes it's not easy to repair. You just have to start carving again. Um, now the time is actually ends up being uh, 
uh, I think my, my record is 35 days from wow. conceiving something <laughs> to, to having it in production. That is way faster than I would have guessed. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, um, that's these... atypical, but... Uh... <laughs> if you had to. <laughs> if, if I had to, if I had control of the all of the means of production, I could probably get it down to, like, three days. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Um, I am super excited, too, about your Allosaurus um, hand lens. That was actually my uh, my thirty five day piece. Oh, <laughs> I I did it. Well, it was because I did a uh, Kickstarter campaign, and it became <laughs> really obvious uh, after like one week that I my goal wasn't super realistic. So I thought I could save face by by rendering the whole campaign moot by having the piece done in time and. Ah, so I put a little excellent. extra effort in. Um, I'm definitely going to show this off in class because everyone's required to have a hand lens. So no one ever buys one. Maybe students will if they have a cool Allosaurus hand lens. <laughs> you know, I I looked online at hand lenses. Luckily, I looked online after I actually made the piece or started making it. But it looks like for like $8, you can get like one with two lenses and UV and visible light illumination um so it's tough to compete with that but uh you know i wouldn't underestimate the nerdiness of some of these students so (laughs) i think having this allosaurus beats the uv light (laughs) having i have a uv light one and i'm saying i would use this one more so (laughs) (laughs) i i never had one with uv light or any kind of light or multiple lenses i just had a uh a triplet and yeah i mean that'll do yes I mean, if that's all you want to show off, John, that's fine. But obviously, well, a true you can't add too much weight. You can't add too much weight to all the car batteries that you're carrying around as a geophysicist ah, here. That's right. That UV light, man, adds like five ounces. That is not not okay. <laughs> uh, I guess that's a question for you, Chris. How how heavy is this little Allosaurus pendant? Um. I can look it up on my website. I'd say uh, 30 grams. Okay. Oh, 23.5. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, the, the 0.5 okay. gram. I don't even know why I put the 0.5 there. I don't think I'm actually <laughs> weighing it to that degree of accuracy. And that doesn't count the chain. Um, ah, that chain. That's the 0.5. We'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, a good, it's a good know, necklace said- weight. Excellent. So you said you send these off to a a casting house and they're cast. What is the material they're actually cast out of? I'm assuming it's some kind of alloy. It's pewter. It's uh, it's lead free pewter, which is an alloy of tin uh, and some other stuff, which is usually copper, bismuth, and antimony. Um, and I don't okay. actually, other than copper, I don't know what those other things really, what their properties are. Right. I mean, I've been really impressed with, you know, the Alvin's been on my, my keychain for quite a while now, and there's really no visible wear on it. It's oh, wow. It's a lot stronger than well, I would have initially anticipated. It's a, it's a relatively soft metal, so eventually it will kind of, like I've had people show me stuff that they've had for years, and like it'll be a penguin that's all, 
all kind of rounded off. Oh um, yeah. But uh but I definitely try and keep in mind the uh the wear and tear. Like so is it relatively often that you get to see these things out in the wild, you know, you see somebody that's got one of your products? Uh it it happens from time to time. Um but not not super often. I guess when you buy from a website, it's not like somebody's going to recognize you in the field and be like, oh, you're that guy from the website, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah <no>. exactly. <laughs> but I can imagine it would be you know, very satisfying to see somebody walking around with the thing that you made. It definitely uh, is, yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I had a question, like how we were really surprised when we did this podcast about who listens so are you surprised about where you get orders from i mean i'm assuming you get international orders too i mean does it surprise you how far how far flung some of these um orders are come from um it's not really surprising but it's it's encouraging that i get orders from pretty much everywhere i guess the internet makes it not surprising but (laughs) (laughs) yeah but especially with the podcast like chan said we were we were expecting that we would have largely professional geoscientists and uh, probably dominantly u.s but we had no real reason to suspect that and instead we actually have a lot of worldwide listeners and a lot of non-geoscientists so it's always interesting to know a little bit about your audience but i would imagine on an e-commerce site, it's a little bit more difficult to get that story with the person that's ordering unless they just happen to email you and tell you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do get, I do get a lot of people emailing me and, and, you know, uh, giving me praise and whatnot. Um, (laughs) that's always nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I, I think we've talked about this before through email, but you haven't attended any of our trade shows like Geological Society of America meetings or the AGU meeting or anything, right? No, I um, I sent some pieces to the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology um, meeting to be used as uh, raffle gifts. But oh, the only excellent. the only actual trade show I did was a biotech trade show, which was held in Boston. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I, just, I, man, I know roughly what the experience is like, I think. <laughs> there is a, a, it's a paleontology society and they have a stuffed Eurypterid and a stuffed trilobite. And I know they are always swamped. So that's just what I think about when I see all your cool trilobite stuff is I wonder how many people would, you know, be clamoring to get this awesome, the trilobite nodule keychain. It's one of my faves on here too. <laughs> But, you know, at AGU, which is right before Christmas every year, there's always a lot of people buying Rush Christmas gifts in the, <laughs> the vendor section at AGU. That is true. And oh. this, I, I think these things would go go over wildly. There. Where is AGU yeah. going to be this year? Well, so normally it's in San Francisco every year. This year, thanks to renovations on the Moscone Center, it's going to be in New Orleans, and then it will be in D.C. the year after that. Oh, so it's not going to be in San... The San Francisco is where I have some family, so I would probably oh, go yeah. there if it was in San Francisco. <laughs> One, three years, it'll be back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when we were preparing for the show, 
you also sent me a link and said that you had recently got the itch to try a comic book. So where did that come from? Um, just out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. People can go have a look. But how long did it take you and sort of what's the plot of your comic book? Oh, it took forever. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> like cartoons look like they should be really quick and easy to draw. And maybe they are for some people. But for me, it's a really arduous uh, process. Um, the plot is uh, very difficult to explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it involves uh, there, there's a little bit of a geology angle to it but mostly it involves uh, ancient Egypt and uh, microbiology that's awesome because <laughs> I did see trilobites in here <laughs> <laughs> you know it reminds me when we had a an AGU session on education oh, several years ago now there was somebody who had drawn a comic book where the superhero was a geologist and their superpower was being a geologist <laughs> and it was it was really amazing so i think these scientific themed comic books definitely could have a market of people that are interested i know there's also one where richard Feynman is the main character oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i think there's a lot of that stuff out there already although i so the the guy's superpower was being a geologist did he have like <laughs> yeah like a pickaxe hand and a, a rock finger that turned truth. into a magnifier or... <laughs> no it was just solving problems knowing geology uh, wow. there wasn't any superhuman element to it so he was like uh -huh. batman yes see <laughs> or without the gizmos which really, I mean, being a geologist is a superpower. So I was, I was <laughs> gonna say that, but <laughs> if somebody oh, asked nice. me what superpower I wanted, I maybe would choose something else. <laughs> no, no, Ouch. no offense. <laughs> oh. Ouch, Chris. <laughs> well, I don't know, like, like invulnerability to bullets or flying or something. Flying is... would come in handy as a geologist. <laughs> I know I didn't have so much luck as a, a science major in school, but I think I probably would have had a better chance of, of getting a geology degree than learning how to fly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that uh, what superpower would you like would be an excellent question for the lightning round on embedded.fm. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I agree. I agree. An, an excellent addition. Okay, well, with that, I think we will move on in the summer short to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> I was so excited about this fun paper. It is fantastic. Yes, and so this is another listener fun paper who I did not lose the name of. <laughs> this was sent in to us by listener Martin. I think Martin would probably uh, eat your lunch if you forgot to uh, name him. So, <laughs> I actually think <laughs> he this... won. He won one of our limericks, didn't he? He did, and yeah. uh, this paper came to us through the Slack channel. So, if you want to discuss this or talk to Martin about it, as always, head over there. 
but it, it's a uh, an interesting it's geobiology which is something that you nor i would go searching out on our own correct <laughs> yeah exactly um so this is a great paper and it is ants as a powerful biotic agent of olivine and plagioclase dissolution and it is by ronald dorn at arizona state and while we wouldn't look at geobiology, this definitely hits close to home because I do a lot of stuff with weathering. So this is basically how ants break down plagioclase and olivine and therefore sequester carbon and affect the whole paleoclimate of Earth. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, the uh, if, if papers could have subtitles, which sometimes, so, you know, colon, I would have this ants is a powerful biotic agent of olivine and plagioclase dissolution colon and exercise impatience <laughs> because yes. this study took samples so that they they took some basalt they put it out in different environments which we'll get to and then went back and sampled it every five years for 25 years i had to reread that when i read that just to make sure i was like over 25 years that had to be a typo and i go down there i'm like nope every five years for 25 years that's impressive and so the idea was we think that ants might have some effect on how these minerals break down because we know that there's got to be, we know that atmospheric CO2 is important. And the drawdown of atmospheric CO2 over these very long time scales has been very important in terms of climate. And everybody's familiar with the Urey reaction, which says that you take uh, so plagioclase or olivine, something like that, and you combine CO2, and you end up getting dolomite or limestone and a bunch of clay. Right. So that's, that, that's one way to sequester CO2, but there are also some biotic mechanisms, and this is seeing just how important ants could be by taking some basalt that was collected in Hawaii, uh -huh. which I th I'm wondering if that was combined with a vacation. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this bag of the basalt sand that he happened to grab and he's like hmm let me think about this <laughs> exactly and putting it out in a variety of environments so on bare ground next to anthills next to termite mounds uh, and bearing controls in plastic tubes Right, and so the point of all these is to determine how much these uh, ants and termites, uh, and also they put it next to trees to talk about roots too, because there's a lot of plant um, action in terms of chemical or in terms of uh, chemical and mechanical weathering, right? And um, so we just want to determine: is it faster? when you're in these environments to actually break down these uh, minerals as opposed to the tube, which was the sort of the control or the bare ground where they put these basalt grains, um, which acted as the control as well. And it's an impressive amount, actually, <laughs> that these little ants and termites have an, on increased weathering of these olivine and, um, and plagioclase grains. Right, so a factor of roughly 50 to 300 times yes. accelerated. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is such a huge deal because there's a lot of ants, right? There's, what does he say, 10 to the 13 ants on Earth? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's some nightmare and, fuel. Yeah, no doubt. 
<laughs> and they say that termites could even have a higher world population than ants, which is even scarier. And so these five years, every five years, he went and checked on um, the weathering of these basalt grains that he had planted. And he planted them in Arizona at varying elevations. So from 1,000 to 2,500 meters in elevation. And then also in Paladuro Canyon in Texas, which sounds like a vacation destination to me as well. <laughs> and, <laughs> and checked out um, what that dissolution was like over every five years. And it turns out the ants are the best at enhancing olivine and pelagioclase dissolution, just like John said, up to 300 times control. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I've, but the data are, you know, they look very nice. There's, of course, some scatter, mm -hmm. but overall, it's a very convincing story. And, you know, you start out with these things that have a porosity of 0 0.002% yeah. or 0 0.001%. So something that's very solid with very mm -hmm. little uh, space in between the grains. And after 25 years, some of them are just falling apart. Right. Yeah, there were a couple that he saw that he couldn't even measure. Um, but there are some really good SEM images in here as well, uh, showing how these olivine grains and the plagioclase grains get pitted and even hollowed out in some cases. Um, so this is really extreme decay. Right. And I know you think over 25 years, well, that's a long time. Things are going to break down. But remember, we're talking about rocks and yeah. <laughs> rocks that are in the plastic tubes broke down very little compared yes. to this. Because yeah. all the, that 50 to 300 times is normalized to the breakdown rate of the rocks in the control tubes. Yes, exactly. Um, and this it makes you think really hard when you walk up to an outcrop and you sample it for something. And you really have to think about if you're not actually working on weathering, you really have to think about how much weathering is affecting whatever it is that you're sampling. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they show in this paper that this 50 to 300 times is a minimum bound because unlike when you drop some sand uh, on the bare ground or put it in the tube, it's going to stay there basically over the 25-year period. You have no idea what happened to these sand grains inside an ant colony. Right. And they may not have had as much interaction time as they could have, so you're seeing a reduced rate. Yeah, that was a, that was a point that I highlighted as well. That's a pretty impressive. Um, he also has this broken down by type of ant, too, which is not presented in this paper, but I'm assuming it might be in the uh, supplementary material, and I think that's kind of a neat... Um, a, a neat way to break it down, too, because he mentions in the very beginning that during the Cenozoic, ants sort of had this big, great diversification. And so maybe because of that, the diversification of ants, that could have affected Cenozoic cooling of the climate because they're uh, sequestering all the CO2. Well, and I think that's where we get to the so what part of this is... <laughs> sequestering co2 is something that's going to become increasingly important right because we are fighting global climate change 
Right. Exactly. And, I mean, this is a huge so what because of how many ants there are. And then if you say ants and termites... And we tend to work, as we talk about a lot on this show, in our own little bubbles, right? And so just because we're working, you know, in the hard rock bubble, (laughs) it means that we need to keep in mind this whole biosphere interaction with our rocks because they could, that interaction could provide a potential very important feedback, obviously, here it's suggested, um, in terms of climate change. So not something... We don't talk about ants when we're talking about climate change, right? We're talking about large-scale, you know, large-scale circulations of the ocean and the atmosphere. But this could be a very vital piece of the pie because it says here in these 25 years, you know, there's like 12% carbonate enhancement at some of these in the Paladuro sites. And it's like, that's a that's quite a, quite a bit of carbonate that they have produced, sitting there being produced that could all be from just these ants dissolving these mineral grains. Well, and the more interesting thing to me about it, though, is a lot of our technology that appears some almost magical sometimes is inspired by nature. So we're looking at animals and how they do things. Uh, underwater robots mimicking how fish swim because it's very energy efficient and so on. So can we figure out exactly what's going on in this interaction to help sequester carbon and then geoengineer a better ah. CO2 storage solution? I see where you're going here. I was just going to breed more ants. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can we make a a large mechanical ant? This definitely sounds like a horror movie now. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a show title. Uh, Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've read Prey by Michael Crichton. It's pretty scary. (laughs) And, you know, Chris, you actually got a a product related to this fun paper, right? Uh, Yeah, I have an ant. A uh, necklace and an ant lapel pin. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what type of ant it is. I don't know if I could sport an ant necklace. Um, we have quite a lot of ants in our yard, and they just bite the crap out of me. So <laughs> they're not my favorite. Well, remember, Shannon, they are they are just enhancing the carbon <laughs> sequestration of your yard. Uh, I'll try to remember that as I'm yelling, jumping up and down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> my neighbors don't think I'm weird enough already. <laughs> well, and ants are really pretty interesting creatures. I'll link in a video to, I believe it was Backyard Scientist, that made a casting of an ant colony by pouring molten metal. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. And and then dug it up after it cooled. Uh, what happened that to would the actually, ants? I, I believe the ants were vaporized, that the ones that were in the colony at the time. And because he used, I believe it was aluminum mm-hmm. to do this yeah, casting. Yeah, it was really lightweight, yeah. I, I, I actually think getting a 3D model or 3D scan of that and downsizing it and making that a Ooh. set of earrings or something like that could be a really fascinating well, you, you asked me where I get the inspiration for, this is this is a good example, like an ant colony, a cross-section of an ant or termite colony is a really good idea. I don't know that if there are specific, cool. like, there's like shafts for for convection of air, um, and there's like a egg chamber and, and whatnot. But, uh, um, I, and you, I'm, you I'm putting that on my it. list as we speak. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I remember when I saw that thing. Um, it looks like a fulgurite too. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fulgurites are less exciting on the inside than an ant colony would be, but same <laughs> shape. Same shape. Well, we uh, you now have a contact <laughs> on <laughs> somebody that knows about ants and geology. So I think this was a, a really great fun paper that was a, a good way to tie together geology, biology, and then what we've been talking about uh, for the whole show with Chris. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is super awesome. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, thanks for sending that in. And if you have your own fun paper that you would like to suggest for the show or ideas for things that you would like to see in cast metal hanging from your keychain or ears, we would <laughs> love to hear them. And you can get a hold of us a bunch of ways. Shannon, how can they do that? Uh, foremost, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're hanging out on Twitter when we're bored during the day, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And then, as John was just talking about, we are in the Slack chat room on the Don't Panic channel. And Chris, if folks want to get a hold of you online, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to my website, taylorcustom.com. Um and I pretty much will get any email sent to me there. Great. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.